Hi, welcome to New Books in Politics. I'm your host, Jeff Bloodworth. January has got to be a really, really difficult month for Mitt Romney. I think we've seen, um, you know, and heard and read that this is definitely a difficult time for conservatives in the GOP in the wake of, well, what they thought was going to be a November victory, which turned into a defeat. Take heart, Mitt Romney. I hope you're listening out there. Take heart, GOP. Scott Ferris has, at least, if the White House doesn't make you feel better, right, maybe this book will. It's called Almost President, The Men Who Lost the Race But Changed the Nation. Scott Ferris is a a journalist who has uh, some training um, in in, in history, and he has written um, a really accessible and deeply informed book about, about losers at the presidential level in American politics and their contributions to changing America. And and this is a a really, I think, kind of novel way of looking at American political history. Instead of looking at, oh my goodness, there, you know, um, Abraham Lincoln, and we can all understand if we've seen the movie, especially, you know, how Abraham Lincoln changed America. But, you know, Scott Ferris has, for instance, a chapter on Stephen Douglas. And so he, he, he goes through 19th and 20th and early 21st century um, American political history, sketching out how notable losers changed American politics um, through their campaigns. And he has a really interesting um, first chapter on the concession speech as sort of an agent of change. Um, This is a fun book. Um, In addition to being fun, it it, it really is deeply informed. Um, Scott Ferris is somebody who's been covering national and state-level races for for decades, Um, and so it really is. I mean, this is a a historically informed political journalist. Uh, I urge you to listen to the uh, interview. It was fun. It was wide-ranging. Go out and buy the book and then read it. Hi, Scott Ferris. How are you? I'm doing very well. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Welcome to New Books and Politics. Um, today we have on New Books and Politics Scott Ferrist, who has written uh, a book, Almost President, The Men Who Lost the Race But Changed the Nation. <laughs> um, Scott, why, why don't, before we kind of jump into talking about the book, why don't you tell us uh, just a little bit about you, some biographical information, educational background, work background, things like that. I'd be delighted to, Jeff. Uh, well, first thing is, you uh, should know I'm a, I'm a native in Wyoming and spent most of my adult life there, which actually I thought was ended up being very helpful in writing the book because Wyoming at one time was a fairly key early uh, caucus state for both the Republicans and the Democrats. So I uh, hmm. had the opportunity to end up as a reporter, which I was in those days, meet a lot of the folks who ran for president over the last uh, 30 years or so. Uh, and in Wyoming, uh, it's not exactly a big media scrum, so you get a lot of one-on-one time. So yeah. I, I felt I got a pretty good sense of some of the folks uh, who were running and who, who they were and what they were trying to do. And uh, in a way, you wouldn't have gotten if I was part of the press corps in Los Angeles or Chicago or someplace like that. But I, I was a reporter. I had a journalism degree from the University of Wyoming, and uh, I worked uh, for United Press International, eventually rising to bureau chief in Cheyenne, which was the state capital, and then worked for some other Wyoming publications where I did a lot of uh, political reporting. I also worked in the religious press. I know the Gannon's a Catholic university, and I uh, uh, worked for the Diocese of Cheyenne for a while as their uh, communications director and editor of the Austin newspaper. But then I also have uh, gone back and forth across the line between journalism and politics, and I have been a 
uh, advisor to a U.S. senator from Wyoming named Malcolm Wallop, hmm. a former governor of Wyoming named Mike Sullivan, the former governor of California, Gray Davis, and the mayor of Portland, Oregon, Vera Katz. And so quite a spectrum there. Malcolm Wallop was in his time considered a pretty conservative Republican. Yeah. Vera Katz is mayor of Portland, considered a pretty liberal Democrat. So I've, uh, I've worked along the gamut. <laughs> it sounds like it. I mean, between, you know, government and, and, and journalism, I mean, you know. I don't know. You've had an inside seat, you know, inside and and an outside seat to kind of see see a little bit of everything. Yeah, I, I noticed in my acknowledgments not only the debt I owe to a lot of professors because I also went back later and got a master's in history at UW, but also just the politicians who give me a chance to really learn the practical side of politics and how government works. And and I think it helps inform the book and gives it, uh, I think, not only sort of a scholarly feel, I hope, but also a very practical feel. But this is the real, really how politics works, and this is the real world implications of these campaigns and these candidacies. Yeah, you know, I'm I'm an academic and political historian, but I, I still I I think some of the best if not a lot of the best writing about political history comes from uh, working journalists. You know, you, you, I don't know, you know, I might be kicked out of the Academy for saying this, but uh, it, you know, it's like, it's almost through osmosis. You see how, how it all works rather than sort of having this ideal in your mind. I mean, do you, well, I mean what is your thought? Do you think, journal, I mean, generally do, you know, a journalist, like someone with a journalistic background, I mean, this obviously gives you, you know, the sort of insights that people like me don't necessarily have. Well, I think clearly uh, as, many, as many life experiences you have helps inform your work and give it a different perspective and a broader perspective. But obviously you cannot write good history without a strong uh, academic background. Sure. And so, you know, I think the best uh, people who write the best books tend to have, be able to have a feel for the practical side, but also are really well-grounded in the theory and the, and the scholarship around it. So yeah. I was really blessed, as I said, in my master's program. I had a wonderful professor named Bud Moore who uh, – who I think was fairly well known nationally for his uh, in, in academia, and uh, obviously he gave me a depth of understanding that I had lacked. And then you do, layer on top of that the sort of mm-hmm. practical experience. I don't think it helps, but I think I think he can get great work out of both uh, both tracks. And so hopefully people read both. Yeah, I mean this is what this this book does nicely. I mean, and I I was reading this over uh, Christmas break, being stuck in airports and, and the <laughs> like. And you know, for those those of us who you know, let's imagine you don't know a lot about 19th century U.S history or alternatively 20th century U.S. I mean, if you want to have one book <laughs> that you can sort of get, you know, at least the, the, you know, the presidential synthesis, you know, presidential history of 19th and 20th century America, I mean, this is one, this is the book for you. Because <laughs> you... Well, thank you very much. I, I mean, it's... I a, it's a No, it's a great cast of characters. I mean, what a great... Um, I mean, first of all, you know, how did you come up with this idea? I mean, you have a little uh, story that you start off with the, the, in the book. I don't know if you want to t- share that story, but how did you come up for this with this idea? Well, sure. It was from practical experience, personal experience. I, in addition to all the things I already mentioned, one of the other things I did that was kind of a crazy thing was I ran for Congress myself in 1998. So I am a huh. failed uh, political candidate myself. <laughs> And uh, it was for a congressional seat in Wyoming, which meant it was the only congressional yeah. seat, so it was a statewide race. And so a fairly big deal. It was a seat Dick Cheney used to hold before him, Tino Roncalio, both a couple of people who made national impressions, obviously, especially Cheney. Yeah. And so, you know, you go into one of these things, and I was a long shot. I knew I was a long shot. I was running as a Democrat in Wyoming, and Wyoming's a very Republican state. But uh, I gave it a good shot, and I ended up. Uh, I mean, made at least a kind of a competitive race, and uh, as you go through an effort like that, you you end up owing a lot of people a lot of favors. I mean, you've you've been bothering your family and your friends and total strangers for their money, for their time, for their talents, and uh, then you 
fall short of the mark and you feel like you've let people down a little bit. And so I was reflecting after the election, you know, did, did all this money and all this time and all this effort really mean anything? Uh, did, it, did it have an impact? And, and so I was very curious to watch the person I lost to, a woman named Barbara Cuban. Did, did it change her a little bit about how she, she uh, did her congressional role? And I think it did. She adopted some issues that I talked about. And so it made me think about the role of losing and uh, can, can you have an impact? Is it really worth running? And uh, the answer I came up with was yes. And then you had a series of very interesting presidential elections in 2004, 08, and of course the most recent one in the 12. That was after I wrote the book, but it uh, it just made me think about this this fairly important role that losers play in our political process. And not only do, is there a special role for losing generally in terms of making democracy work, and we can talk about that, yeah. but also some of these people I was thinking about, I suddenly realized, you know, they had a tremendous influence on our political history, and in some instances, as I argue in the book, they had a greater impact on American political history than some of the people who defeated them, or at least some of the people who became president. And as you said, there's a really fascinating cast of characters. I focused, ended up focusing on about a dozen, well, nine who I thought really changed history, and then three people I sort of lumped together, Gore, Kerry, and McCain, yeah. the most recent folks. But nine, nine people, beginning with Henry Clay and going through Ross Perot, who I thought really did change the political landscape in a very profound way, and I thought that was worth exploring. No, I, I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, Ross Perot, we'll, we'll get to Ross Perot. Kind of, we'll work through, you know, you know not sure. that we we don't want to read the the book to everyone, but let's <laughs> let's work through this because there, you know, there's a lot of I think uh, forgotten figures and people who listen to this will, will be familiar with them. But I mean, let's just, you know, I I, I like your um, your focus on the concession speech, right? I mean. I can't now that I haven't Googled it or looked at WorldCat to see you know if there are books that look at the concession speech. But do you just want to talk about that. Sure, you know the concession ritual was actually uh, I, I've become become even increasingly aware. It's kind of some, almost something unique to American democracy, and I think it is, as I argue in the book, one of the things that actually makes uh, democracy work a bit. Hmm. Um, it is. I, just, I was interviewed by a German magazine, which was interesting, and, and in, in the article that came out later, the author noted that a concession speech in Germany is unheard of, that the losing candidate huh. in a parliamentary system almost never comes out and you know, concedes defeat and moves on. Yeah. But, but I think in the concession speech in America, one of the things that has struck me is that um, we have this this very passionate uh, exercise every four years of a presidential election, and people's tempers come to the surface, especially recently with the country so evenly divided. Yeah. And it's always amazing to me that in a country where we write after the Super Bowl and the Stanley Cup and all these other things that you would think wouldn't mean too much, we don't see violence after a presidential election, even though people are just, you know, their faces are red and their veins are popping yeah. right up on election day. And then it's like everything just kind of calms down afterwards. Yeah. And the question is, why is that so in America when it's not mm. true in some other countries where after an election you'll have riots and, and uh, arson and even maybe sometimes civil war? Mm. And so what is the role? And one of it is the tradition we've established, thanks to some of the early losers, that, yeah. you know, you be gracious about it. Uh, you you come out and you congratulate your opponent. Uh, you soothe your uh, supporters and say, "Look, you know we didn't win this time, but we'll be back in four years. We'll give it another try. Don't lose heart." And this is what my campaign did accomplish, and we should feel good about that. And it is sort of an interesting ritual. It's not a, it's not a cliche. It's now 
actually a ritual, I think, where yeah. the losing candidate comes out and it sets the tone for reconciliation after a very, very difficult campaign. And I, I do think it's that kind of key moment when people, it's sort of a cathartic moment when people sort of exhale, they feel better about themselves, even if they've lost. And, and we sort of get move on to support the person who's won and try to get on with the business of governance. So it's, I think, in a very interesting ritual. It's overlooked, and yet everything stops election night. The, the winning candidate cannot come out until the losing candidate concedes. That's just now the way it is in America. Yeah. And I thought it was very interesting just in, in this year, uh, in November, uh, when Mitt Romney lost. And it was obviously a surprise to him. All his polling told him he was going to win. And yet uh, people were very anxious for him to come out and concede because they wanted to get on with it and move on. And yet nobody stopped to think about, well, why do we have to wait for him? Why is it important that we hear hmm. from Mitt Romney before Barack Obama comes? Yeah. And I hope the book, that chapter in the book, raises people's awareness. Oh, okay, this is why. This is this important step. This is this important ritual that makes democracy function in a nonviolent way. You know, the first presidential election that I really paid attention to, and it's probably because I was able to vote, was 1992. And I'll never forget this. You know, I, you know, I, I voted for Bill Clinton. I was excited when he won. But I'll never forget that um, Dan Quayle, I mean, he must have been introducing uh, President Bush. But um, he he mentioned Bill Clinton's name, and people in the audience started booing. And I'll never forget this. Quayle kind of raised his finger, and he said, no, 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 no. If he runs the country nearly as well as he did his campaign, we're going to be all right. I, you know, I, like, why I remember that. <laughs> I thought it was so gracious, you know, and, and from someone that, you know, at the time, I think we had fairly low opinions. Most, you know, many Americans have pretty low opinions, including myself, of, of the of former vice president. And, you know, it's, it always stuck with me. I thought, oh, well, that was really magnanimous. And, you know, and then again, you're, you're following this. That's what you're supposed to do in an American democracy. I mean, I guess it never occurred to me that maybe Dan Quayle was thinking – actually the opposite <laughs> but this is very important uh, this is just what you do no, I, I agree. And I, remember, I actually do remember that as well. And, and I yeah. think that there are good examples of it. And, and again, it's so important. I think it is important to be gracious. And part of it is political self-interest. Sure. They don't about all altruistic. A yeah. lot of these guys hope to run again, and they don't want to be known as a sore loser. That's yeah. not a, a tag you want to get in American politics. But it is important. And I, and I think Nixon was another one in 1960. Yeah. Heartbreaking loss. A lot of allegations of voter <laughs> fraud in Illinois and Texas. Yeah. And did you know, Kennedy steal the election? And yet uh, Nixon said, no, you know, we're in the middle of the Cold War. Uh, it's important that America be unified. And again, I don't want to be seen as a sore loser. So he came out. I also made a very gracious speech. And I think John McCain in 2008 gave a very another great example, as you pointed out, as when, when people started booing Clinton and when uh, Obama, uh, when, when, when uh, excuse me, when uh, McCain came out and he mentioned Obama's name, his supporters started booing. Remember, he said, oh, no, 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 let's not do that. He's our president. He's my president. We've now got to get behind him, and uh, and uh, we've got to get the country moving forward. And that's why I thought a little bit, uh, not not to pick on him, because the poor guy's already been through enough, but Mitt Romney's speech, again, he, he sort of bragged on Election Day. You may recall, he said, look, I didn't even bother. I'm so sure I'm going to win, I didn't even bother to write a concession speech. Hmm. And I think you could sort of tell that. He kind of threw something together at the last minute, and certainly wasn't ungracious, but it wasn't particularly generous, and it, it didn't really sort of rise to the standard where you say, wow, why didn't I vote for that guy? And I think yeah. there's a lot of things <laughs> the losers don't need to remember, too, that you know, this is their last chance to be the center of attention, at least for a while. And this is their last chance where everybody's listening to them. And this is a chance to really make it one more sort of great impression and define your legacy. Yeah. Quayle improved his. McCain certainly did. Yeah. 
Romney didn't do his any favor because he didn't understand the power of the concession speech. That's a very good point. I mean, let, so let's let's jump into this. And I mean, this is somebody you know, the great compromiser. I, I love it, Henry Clay. Um, <laughs> One of my favorites. Yeah. 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 Talk about Henry Clay. What? What? Um, you know, the the three time loser. Uh, t- talk about how he sort of you know how why is Henry Clay, um, you know, the the first example. Well, firstly, I think you know Henry Clay can make a claim as being one of the most greatest Americans who never became president. Yes. I think we sort of, we always sort of tend to measure American history by our presidents yes. and our presidential administrations. But there have been a number of great Americans who never had the chance to be president. John Marshall would be one. Mm-hmm. George C. Marshall another. Sure. Uh, Henry Clay would certainly be up there as an American. Alexander Hamilton, who who are Americans who made enormous contributions to the country but never became president. And so we don't study them as much. We have sort of this unhealthy fixation on the presidency yes. as if that's the end all and be all of our democracy. And, yeah. and I think Henry Clay was probably the greatest legislator in American history. He established the modern speakership. Yeah. Uh, he was a speaker as a freshman in Congress. Hmm. Imagine if yeah. I mean, we just got elected last year, came in and beat John Boehner, and now speaker would be a big deal. Yeah. Well, that's what happened back in 1811 with Henry Clay. Um, he just had such obvious gifts. And, and before Henry Clay, the speakership had been a ceremonial thing, just basically you know, starting the sessions and ending the sessions. And Clay said, no, no, the speaker has a lot more to do than that. He gets to decide what bills get to be heard and what committees members get to be on. And so he became a very powerful speaker. Then he moved into the Senate uh, with Webster and Calhoun, part of the great triumvirate, and, and sort of, just, as you point, the great compromiser three times forged compromises that avoided civil war, which probably was in the long-term interest of the nation. Yeah. But he also desperately wanted to be president, uh, and so he ran uh, many times. He, he was actually on the ballot, the general election ballot, three times, 1824, uh, 1832, and 1844, and he tried a few other times besides that. Never never won, but he did profoundly change American politics, and again, that's kind of the focus of my book. I don't just talking about all the things they did before or after yeah. they became a presidential candidate, but in his campaign, the reason I focus on Henry Clay is he, he created – the modern two-party system mm-hmm. because of his uh, feud with Andrew Jackson. Jackson and Clay absolutely despised each other. It's amazing they never fought a duel. They said the nastiest <laughs> things about each other you can imagine. It makes modern politics look pretty pretty tame by comparison. Yeah. And uh, and so he was so sure that Jackson was going to become a dictator in the, in the mold of Cromwell or Caesar uh, that Clay developed this national apparatus, which became known as the Whig Party, specifically designed to try to defeat Andrew Jackson. Before that, there was only the one party, as you know, the Jeffersonian Republicans that sort of, after the Federalists disappeared, dominated American politics for a generation. But Clay resurrected the idea that we should have two uh, healthy parties, two Big Ten mm-hmm. parties uh, going against each other. And I think that's a real strength of American democracy. We, we badmouth the two-party system. I, I became convinced after writing the book that the two-party system is one of the great innovations in American democracy. But Clay was yes. responsible for that. He created the Whig Party almost out of whole cloth. He had he was the only politician in America who really had the national standing to do so, and the genius, just a political genius. He developed the platform. It was called the American System. Mm-hmm. It, it was the natural tie between Hamilton and and Lincoln. Yeah. Lincoln was a huge uh, Clay admirer. In fact, he called him his beau ideal of a statesman. Yeah. Modeled a lot of his positions on Henry Clay's positions, and so Clay really. Um, creates this two-party system and creates the Whig Party, which evolves into the Republican Party. I don't see how he could be more influential than that. So that's why I start with Henry Clay. And I also start, by the way, because that 1824 election where Clay was one of the four participants was the first election where the popular vote really counted in terms of selecting the president. Before that, it had all been just state legislatures, and now it was back in the hands of the people. So I sort of view that also as the beginning of modern politics. 
Yeah, that's probably a good point. Um, do you want to talk? I think this is a good point that you make about the the genius of the of the two party system. Um, do you just want to talk about you know what what do you think the advantage of the two party system versus a multi party system is? I mean, I don't know if that's something you want to really get into, but would you care to? To, to talk about. Well, I, I will talk about it because another one of the losers I focus on who uh, is, is Tom Dewey, who also yeah. wrote extensively and gave some lectures about why he thought the two-party system was important. Yeah. And why, and this is, I think is very interesting to contemporary, given you know, where the Republicans are right now, and they're sort of doing all this soul-searching, having sure. all these retreats about how do, we, how do we come back and start winning majorities in presidential elections again, is that Dewey and, and I think Clay, too, both knew that somehow you needed uh, parties uh, the American, in America because of our – we're already sort of diffuse. We already have sort of it's, – it's a voluntary association. It's not yeah. like France or Germany where you have cultures that go back 2,000 years and you're drawing on that. Mm-hmm. You're, you're trying to get people to voluntarily associate despite their, their different backgrounds and, and different interests. And so it's important in America to have two parties. You definitely need to have the competition. But the two parties need to be very big tent. They need to be broadly, not too ideologically uh, oriented. They can't be too narrowly focused. They need to encompass a whole bunch of different uh, beliefs. Yeah. And and they have to each have sort of a reasonable – and because of that, they each have sort of a reasonable chance to win elections. Hmm. And that's another reason that keeps violence low is that hmm. whether you're a Democrat or Republican, you lose this time. You know that your party still represents an awful lot of people, and there's a very good chance you'll come back and win four years later. Yeah. So you feel you're not doomed to minority status, which yeah. builds a lot of frustration up and that could erupt into violence. And so I think that's really the genius of the two-party system is that – it, 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 it ensures that you're always you have a very good chance of being on the winning team, and so you have a little more faith in the process. Hmm. Whereas if you're in a minority, you don't. And, and surveys have shown this that people who don't belong or, or don't don't identify with the two parties, or who identify with a what we call a third party in the United yeah. States, have a much higher level of frustration and, and disappointment with the American democracy than people who, who are a Republican or a Democrat. I think you've just described about 40 percent of every assistant professor in the United States. Just like. <laughs> <laughs> That could very well be true. I, mean, I think people think we don't have enough choices, but part, part, of, the, part of the genius of American democracy, why it functions, is yeah. that the choices are limited. But, yeah. but the theory, the choices are sort of in the center and representing center left, center right, so that yeah. you sort of feel an affinity for one side or the other, even if your full views aren't represented. And if they're not, then you should just run for office yourself. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, and I think you made a very good point. I mean, one thing that I've all you know is that third party candidates, if they're at all successful, one of the two parties are going to subsume their ideas. And one of the points that I'd never thought about was, you know, that through the concession speech and actually through being an unsuccessful candidate, you know, you can actually still force some of your ideas onto the other side. Just by losing, and do you want do you want to talk about that just for a second? Because I I never yeah. I never thought about that, and I think you're absolutely correct. Well, let's jump to William Jennings Bryan, another yeah. one major figure sure. in my book, and that very fascinating man, very oh, misunderstood yes. in my opinion. A guy yeah. who's mostly sort of known for the movie Inherit the Wind as must have been <laughs> this Neanderthal who didn't believe in evolution, and, and the book explains his reasons for opposing evolution, which actually were more political than scientific. Yeah. And, and and fascinating. Anyway, interesting guy. When William Jennings Bryan ran in 1836, 1996, excuse me, he was only 36 years old. He had served two terms in Congress. <laughs> and again, you sort of try to figure out a contemporary example. It's like somebody we'd never heard of uh, from Nebraska or Missouri uh, who wasn't even in Congress anymore suddenly came up and became the dominant figure in their party. Again, it was a remarkable story. Yeah. 
But so Brian runs, and of course he sort of steals from a third party, the Populist Party, adopts a lot of their ideas, which he's already been working on as a Democrat. But when Brian runs in, 19, in 1896, he is considered an absolute radical, <laughs> and he absolutely terrifies more than half the country. Uh, yeah. Wall Street considered him a borderline Bolshevik, and they didn't talk about Bolshevik. Anarchists would have been the epithet in those days. Yeah. Um, but everything that William Jennings Bryan talked about in 1896 that changed the Democrats from the conservative party they had been, yeah, because the Democrats were the conservative small government party of the 19th century, into the liberal progressive party of the 20th century. Mm-hmm. Bryan achieved that. But everything that Bryan advocated in 1896 eventually became law, an income tax, a federal reserve, regulation of the railroads, uh, regulation uh, labor laws, uh, suffrage for women. All these things that seemed so radical in 1896 eventually were all adopted within Brian's lifetime, most of it, and the rest of it shortly thereafter during the New Deal. So Brian is a tremendous example of a losing candidate who was was considered way outside the mainstream, and yet all his ideas eventually were adopted and, and now are just accepted. I don't think we're ever going to go back where six-year-olds work in factories again. I hope not. <laughs> uh, but, but Brian was the guy who changed that in a losing campaign. And uh, and as a real long shot, uh, just a fascinating the 1896 campaign, probably the most exciting election in American history, even though the end result wasn't quite as close as some of the others. But in terms of just the enthusiasm mm-hmm. and the, the religious fervor yes. that, it, that it generated, unmatched in American history. And and just and and really on 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 one hand, this was a battle between uh, you know kind of competing demographies. In 1896, you know, an, an ascendant urban industrial America defeating you know, um, a slowly um, – uh, what's the word? Collapsing is not the word right – this is the right word, but defeating a, um, you know, a rural white Protestant America. It disappeared, yeah, disappearing yeah. rural sort of yeah. society. And I think, you know, Brian, Brian tried very hard. He was certainly the precursor of guys like Al Smith and Franklin Roosevelt who Absolutely. created the, what we call the New Deal Coalition. He didn't completely understand urban America. Yeah. Uh, he had a chance to. He lived in Chicago briefly, but he hated it so much <laughs> he left right away, which is too bad. He might have, you know, if he'd really gone out and sort of gotten to know urban workers, he might have been able to address their concerns. But you're right, part of it, he was viewed as maybe too uh, anti-Catholic, though he wasn't really. He, yeah. he he was happy to give, lec- you know, he spoke in Catholic churches, he admired the Catholic church, but there was sort of a disconnect. But he laid that foundation that then, like I said, then Woodrow Wilson, then Al Smith, then Franklin Roosevelt, and pretty soon he had the 20th century democratic coalition but William Jennings Bryan was the one who started it all. Yeah, I mean it's it's this is your your figures I think are outstanding because they're all you know these these transitional figures. You know, Bryan is the man who, you know, if one person can span, you know, the 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 populist movement into what becomes, you know, the you know the progressive movement from it, working in the Wilson administration, which of course also employed Franklin Roosevelt. I mean, mm-hmm. this is the person who kind of brings his followers into into becoming progressives, and and in the same way, Al Smith. And again, this is another you know forgotten loser. Um, you want to talk about Al Smith for a minute and and sort of his contribution. Yeah, I'd love to. And again, yeah. you know, I mentioned that I once worked for the Catholic Church in, in the Diocese of Cheyenne, and Gannon's Catholic, so I think yeah. it's particularly important to look to sure. at Al Smith. Um, Al Smith, of course, was an extraordinarily successful and progressive governor of New York. Yeah. Uh, the, the, um, or spacing on her name, the woman, Frances Perkins, who yeah, worked yeah. Uh, as the first woman cabinet member under Roosevelt. 
loved Roosevelt, but she said, you know, in truth, Al Smith was a better governor than Franklin Roosevelt. So that's how good Al yeah. Smith was. Um, but Smith, of course, his central role in American history is that he was the first Catholic nominated for president, in which he was in 1928. And uh, there's still an awful lot of anti-Catholic sentiment in America. It hasn't completely dissipated today, but sure. in, in, in 1928, it really was very, very strong. And while it would have been difficult for Al Smith to have beaten Hoover that year, given the fact that the country was at peace and pretty prosperous under Republican leadership, the dimensions of his loss, the size of it, the scope of it, and the, the vitriol that surrounded it really shocked American Catholics. I think hmm. after World War I, when Catholics had served uh, with distinction, I think most American Catholics in the 20s assumed that the old anti-Catholic uh, shibboleths had, had gone away, but they hadn't. And so Smith would travel the country, and the Ku Klux Klan would greet him with burning crosses, a reef of explosions in, in Montana. There were threats on his life. Even respectable uh, people, including Herbert Hoover's wife, <laughs> questioned whether Catholics could be loyal Americans or whether they should. Uh, there, was, there was one uh, senior general who said not only should a Catholic not be commander in chief, they shouldn't even be senior officers. They're only good for cannon fodder. And so uh, that obviously stung quite a bit. And I think that the church, when they realized it, and, and it, it caught the church off guard. If you read Commonweal, for example, which was a publication in yeah. the 20s, they were expecting this high-tone campaign. Here was Al Smith, this great governor, and Herbert Hoover, who had been this outstanding secretary of commerce and this great humanitarian. This was going to be this high-planed campaign uh, focusing on the big issues. It was going to be a credit to American democracy, and instead it's primarily about Al Smith's religion. And they were very dismayed. And so a lot of Catholics... Uh, whether they were in the hierarchy or just lay Catholics and lay Catholic leaders, after Smith lost, kind of regrouped and said, we need to do something to, to finally put this anti-Catholic sentiment to rest in America. And the, the main decision they made, the most interesting thing they made, was to aggressively move into the mass media, particularly radio and the movies, mm -hmm. and try to get Catholicism portrayed in a positive way. And they were enormously successful in doing that. They began to dump, have a lot of very popular shows on mm -hmm. on radio and later in the television that, that were, you know, both Fulton Desheen and others who became, you know, just obviously ordinary guys who could talk to middle America. Mm -hmm. And then they went into Hollywood, and, and it was Catholics who drafted the production code, Catholics who enforced the production code. Yeah. And so suddenly you saw all these very positive portrayals of Catholics in the films, like Spencer Tracy and Boys Town or Bing Crosby and Going My Way. Yeah. And suddenly, by the 40s and 50s, instead of being an alien religion, Catholicism almost almost become the, the religion of mainstream America. Whenever Hollywood wants to portray religion in a positive light, they almost always used a Catholic not a Protestant. Hmm. And so I argue by the 50s, and of course then in the 50s, the Catholic Church is, the, is at the forefront of anti-communist anti movement and all that. But really, by the 1950s, when the time Kennedy starts to run for president, Catholicism, I think, is actually a benefit, not a hindrance to him. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Kennedy didn't always agree with that. But I think there's a strong case to be made that really... No, I think you're uh, right. Yeah. Yeah, certainly, certainly Catholicism isn't the albatross it was in 1928, yeah. and that's because of the changes that occurred after the shock of how Al Smith was defeated. That's yeah. a long-winded answer, I apologize. No, 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 I think I, it was fascinating, because this is the... I've always suspected that the our understanding of, of Kennedy... Yeah, there were pockets where, you know, Kennedy's Catholicism didn't... Um, 
didn't help him as much as they could have. But Kennedy still carried large swaths of the South. And you just, you know, you, you got to think that if Kennedy's able to carry Texas, and I know it's Johnson's on the ticket, you know, still Kennedy's at the top, that sometimes I, I think that historians have sort of just been like, oh, yeah, there was anti-Catholic bias in 19 – you know, they, they just sort of rely upon what happened to Al Smith as a way of explaining 1960. And yeah. it's like well, he won after all. <laughs> <laughs> he did. Well, and the interesting thing is that Kennedy himself, I mean, privately, uh, Ted Sorensen, he had Ted Sorensen write up a memo in 1956 trying to convince Adley Stevenson to put him on the ticket. Mm-hmm. And Sorensen went through all this list about exactly that, why, why Catholicism is now a benefit, not a hindrance, and why you should put Kennedy on the ticket. So privately, Kennedy knew that uh, attitudes were, towards Catholicism had really changed. Um, and, you know, he was running against, uh, again, Eisenhower's a bit like the, the 20s. I mean, yeah. he had a Republican president who was yeah. very popular. The country was at peace, pretty prosperous. There had been a recession in 59 that kind of hurt uh, Nixon, but Nixon was also pretty popular, had very – always connected with middle America. Yeah. And so I think, you know, Kennedy's feeling that he should have gotten 53 percent of the vote, which is kind of what he thought, and then he only gets 49 percent. Uh, he blamed it on Catholicism. Not really. I think it's just, it just was going was gonna to be a tough race all the way around, and the Nixon was a formidable uh, campaigner. Yeah. No, it, 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 I think it's a telling difference between Al Smith, who was rolled in 1928, and 1960. You have, you know, Kennedy eking out a win, and, you know, there's some you – know, Democrats were the majority um, party at that time. But still, I mean, it's it's a telling – I think it's a telling difference. Um you do, let's talk. Uh, kind of move to, to to Tom Dewey again. This is another sort of if Al Smith, Al Smith at least gets sort of a shout out for being the lone, you know, uh, well, I guess the second now uh, Catholic, uh, Catholic uh, major Catholic nominee. Um, he and John Kerry, there would be there would be two. Is yep. it, am I correct That's about right. that? Yeah. That is correct. Um, and so Dewey gets absolutely no love um, from you know I think most historians. So. What is what is Dewey's contribution as a loser? Um, Dewey, uh, I think, sort of, again, this is something that's very analogous to contemporary events because Republicans yeah. are struggling with this right now. Absolutely. What what Dewey's loss did, even though he lost twice in forty four and forty eight, he his, his was the turning point in the Republican Party in which the Republican Party accepted the concept of the welfare state. Mm. And learn to accommodate it. If you look at uh, before Dewey in, in, in the 36 and 40 elections, the, the Republicans are still trying to repeal the New Deal. Yeah. Or as Tom Dewey said, they're trying to repeal the 20th century. I tell you how Tom Dewey felt about the conservative wing of his party. But yeah. But but with Dewey, he 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 just believed with all his heart that if if Republicans didn't understand that uh, the public had an, an, an excuse me an expectation that government was interested in their personal welfare, that the Republicans would be doomed to minority status. And so he he always argued against uh, strongly opposed the Taft wing of the party and, and later the the uh, McCarthy wing and the, and the John Birch Society as as being uh, people who were intent on destroying the Republican Party with their good intentions. And so his his great benefit it was that he sort of said, look, uh, uh, people like Social Security. Uh, they, they want the government to regulate the food we eat and the drugs we take and, and the, the water we drink, and, and we need to, to accommodate that. And what we as, cons- as a conservative party need to do is to show how conservative principles can achieve liberal ends. Hmm. And so we need to show how we can do this primarily through local and state governments. So it always have to be centralized in Washington, mm-hmm. how we do it more efficiently so there's less waste, uh, how we sort of uh, adapt, adapt these things. You look at uh, – I know you guys are up there uh, near uh, 
near New York. And so you know, the State University of New York is a good uh, example. Uh, Dewey, as governor, created the SUNY system, yeah. and he deliberately made it so that it was probably the least centralized uh, state university system in the country. And he, and he, and he did it on purpose because he wanted to show, again, that local control is the best way to achieve this. But it's still important that government provide things like access to higher education, the government provide freeways, infrastructure, yeah. uh, and all these things. And so the other thing that Dewey did after 48 was that not only did his own campaign sort of articulate this to sort of make it the standard for the Republican Party because of his two nominations, he then was instrumental in getting Eisenhower the nomination in 52 and then making sure that Nixon was uh, Eisenhower's running mate. And so Dewey was, was, was the kingmaker in the Republican Party and really uh, dominated the Republican Party for more than a quarter century and set the tone so that the Republican Party redefined its role as not sort of you know going back to the 1920s but sort of accommodating the New Deal and and sort of this small gov, this sort of sensible, uh, as George W. Bush called it, compassionate conservatism. Yeah. Uh, we understand government has a role in making lives better on a daily basis for Americans, but we have different ways of doing it. But give us the chance to do that. And so I think that was very important. Now the modern thing, the interesting thing is, of course, now there are elements. We call them the Tea Party. Yeah. That we really would like to sort of go back to that era when people would say we got to get rid of Medicare, we got to get rid of Social Security. These are socialist things. They're breaking the bank. They, they create a culture of dependency. And Dewey's advice to them was: if you do that, you're going to destroy the Republican Party, and they'll never win another election. It's really I find it interesting because you know Dewey, um, you know I guess before the Bushes, you know became the, the first family of establishment conservatism. I mean. Dewey is the original Mr. Establishment. And, you know, his his first rival, you know, of, of the conservative wing, you know, Bob Taft. I mean, Bob Taft supported, I, mean, I used to live in Ohio, thoroughgoing um, projects of public housing. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> Bob Taft was not, you know, he was Mr. Conservative, Mr. Republican, uh, was not nearly as conservative as the Goldwater wing, which you talk about, I think, I mean, I mean, so let's just let's just get to to Barry Goldwater. I mean, this okay. continuing civil war um, with you know within uh, the conservative movement. Um, so you have Dewey able to secure help secure the nomination for Nixon. Nixon loses. Uh, the Democrats, you know, uh, do their circular firing squad. Um, but before that, you have Barry Goldwater, and you just talk about Goldwater and I mean and his his contributions. Well, Goldwater, I, I mentioned that Henry Clay was a political savant. I, I talk about a lot of these guys yeah. were political savants. They just had an intuitive understanding of politics and how to move people and shift coalitions around. And yeah. Barry Goldwater was also. Barry Goldwater used to sort of self-deprecating, you know, say, you know, everyone knows I don't have a first-class brain. But in fact, in some ways, he was extremely, extremely smart. In many ways, he was an extremely smart guy. And he was very interested in creating a new Republican majority, and uh, he wrote, kept a diary, so it's, we, can, we can know it's kind of what he was thinking. And as early as 1953, which was his first year in the U.S. Senate, he sat down and he said, you know, uh, we keep writing off the South as being solidly Democratic, and then it's never going to change. But I think that the South and the West, the American West, have something in common, which was a natural antipathy towards the federal government. Hmm. The South, because of its history uh, as the Confederacy, and the West, because of its physical removal from Washington. Both see Washington, D.C. as almost a foreign occupier. Yeah. yeah. And he said – and so he said, my mission in life is going to be to try to figure out how to create this new coalition where we bring the South into the Republican Party around a sort of Western 
uh, libertarian style of conservatism. And yeah. this was really what he, he thought, consciously thought, and he also had very good instincts. He realized, I suppose the downside is, even though Barry Goldwater was personally no bigot, I mean, you know, his, his, his uh, family's store, Goldwater's, was very enlightened in the hiring of uh, minorities. Goldwater himself helped start the chapter of the NAACP in, yeah. in Arizona. He, he contributed to the Urban League. So I don't think anybody, I'm not suggesting Barry Goldwater was a bigot. But Goldwater realized that the key to getting the South to think about Republican was to get in past the issue of race. And so, well, get, get, get Democrats to realize that they, they could be comfortable in the Republican Party. The Republican Party, uh, the whole idea of the Republicans as being the party of the Reconstruction, they needed to get beyond that. And so uh, Goldwater gave a lot of thought and came out with the book Conscience of a Conservative that he co-wrote with L. Brent Bozell. Yeah. And they argued that the federal government had a limited role in enforcing civil rights, that the federal government could only uh, enforce the rights of African Americans to vote, but there was no role for the government in the Constitution to promote equal rights or equal opportunity as part of its mission. And he was one of the only, was one of the few Republicans uh, to vote against the Civil Rights Act of 1964, and this caused him to be a popular figure in the South. And so, in 1964, his his campaign in 1964 represents the time when the Democratic stranglehold on the South really crumbled. Eisenhower and Nixon had made a little bit of gains in the South, but Goldwater did very well, especially in the Deep South. Mississippi yeah. had never voted Republican. They gave Goldwater 87% of the vote. African Americans still weren't voting in Mississippi, but Goldwater got 87% of the vote in Mississippi, a state that never voted Republican before. So that's how dramatic the change was. And wow. now, you look at the, as you look at the modern Republican Party, yeah. where, is, where is its bedrock strength? It's in the Mountain West, the Southwest, yeah. and it's in the South, exactly yeah. where Barry Goldwater dreamed of this alliance. And so that's why he's a very formidable uh, figure in American political history. Hmm. Yeah, and so, um, I mean, I kind of skipped Adelaide Stevenson because I think Stevenson and McGovern kind of obviously they go well together. Um, and do you want to talk about maybe how Stevenson and McGovern, you know, what, what they – how they kind of laid the basis for the kind of contemporary Democratic Party? I will. Uh, again, I think that's exactly right. I think they sort of represented the next step past the New Deal. Yeah. Uh, Stevenson in terms of – and, and, and the interesting thing about the thing I focus on Stevenson is maybe it seems not quite as uh, momentous as some of the other accomplishments. But one thing that sort of intrigued me about American politics is why, how the Democrats, the, the quote, the People's Party, are now known as the party of the elites. <laughs> you know, the yeah. academics and, and sort of the, the Hollywood and the Manhattan, yeah. Upper East Side of Manhattan kind yeah. of crowd. Uh, when did that start? And the answer, allegedly, uh, is that it started under Adley Stevenson. But Stevenson was such a different kind of politician. He wasn't the old uh, Democratic populist, didn't give the stem winders, uh, mm -hmm. you know, like, like uh, well, some of the people, you know, Tom Watson and, and, you know, or even Harry Truman. Yeah. He was very erudite, very urbane, uh, liked uh, learning. His speeches were very different than most political speeches. You know, if you run for politics as a journalist, you're told, you know, aim at a sixth grade education level. Don't hmm. use big words. Don't use big concepts. Talk in language people understand. Uh, Stevenson, to hell with that. I'm going to talk about what hmm. I want to talk about, and I believe that American people are smart enough to understand what I'm saying. 
And they did. He became a big sensation. I mean, you think of the Democrats should have had no chance in 1952. They'd had the White House for 20 years. Uh, the, the second term of the Truman administration had been riddled by corruption. We were stuck in Korea with no end in sight. And yet Adlai Stevenson was such a fresh face and such an appealing character that he did very well against Eisenhower and brought a lot of people into the party that previously had not considered themselves Republicans. In fact, Stevenson made great inroads, particularly in New England, hmm. uh, which had previously, again, been sol- just like the South had been solidly Democrat, New England had been solidly Republican. Uh, Eisen- or, uh, Stevenson starts bringing a lot of New Englanders into the Republican Party. And he also, with his urbanity and sort of this uh, sense of, you know, uh, being uh, appealing to intellectuals, sort of lays the groundwork for the for the Kennedy presidency. And Arthur Schlesinger Jr., the historian who worked for Kennedy, said John Kennedy probably couldn't have been elected if Adlai Stevenson hadn't first paved the way. Mm-hmm. So big, big deal there. Then McGovern comes along, and McGovern, I think, uh, gets credit for, again, sort of moving the Democratic Party past the New Deal coalition. It didn't seem like it was much of a success in 1972 because he got crushed by Nixon, yeah. and, and, and Democrats for decades kept saying, don't, don't want to believe me with George McGovern. I'm no McGovern. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but what McGovern saw, again, certainly this intuitive political genius that all these guys have is that the New Deal coalition is disappearing. Yeah. Organized labor's numbers are decreasing. The urban ethnics are moving to the suburbs, and their kids are going to college, and they're becoming Republicans. We're losing the South. We've lost the South. I think McGovern already understood that in 1972. So we need to replace it with a new coalition, and he thought the coalition should evolve around uh, minorities, around women, especially working women, and around the young, and people who are caring about sort of new emerging issues like the environment. And that wasn't a very big coalition in 1972, especially like Hispanics. McGovern was the first uh, candidate to explicitly reach out to Hispanic voters, the first to reach out specifically to gay voters. So that coalition was pretty small in 1972, and he got creamed. Yeah. But what did the coalition that Barack Obama has now uh, written uh, yeah. the two successful elections? Well, yeah. it's been focused on minorities. It's been focused on women. It's been focused on the young. Yeah. And so McGovern created the modern Democratic coalition that has allowed uh, Obama to be the first Democrat since Roosevelt to win two elections with more than 50 percent of the vote. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, McGovern, McGovern was, uh, I guess one could say prescient, you know, um, I, you wouldn't have said that in 1972, but I think he's been, you know, you're, I couldn't agree more. I mean, uh, the Obama coalition is, is, is the uh, McGovern coalition. And I loved it. That you included Ross Perot, um, because I think you know some of Ross Perot's kind of, especially what was that? He had the debate with Al Gore on Larry King um, about NAFTA, and Gore just sort of cleaned his clock. And yeah, that was kind of the end of of Ross Perot. <laughs> <laughs> but you could talk. I mean, I I couldn't agree more than how important Ross Perot was in, in 1992 and again in 1996. I mean, I had I think most of my family actually voted for Ross Perot, um, but you could just talk. About about his importance? I will. I think there are two tracks. One thing we, we mentioned earlier about how third parties, some, if they're or already losing candidates, if they have good ideas, the winning candidates or, or some future people will, will take them away and make them their own. And, and Perot, I think, uh, that a lot. I mean, really, if you look at uh, – uh, he was obviously known for the deficit reduction, and that had always been a kind of concern of, of conservatives and liberals for a long time, but he sort of made it the focal point. And, yeah. and son of a gun, we had enough economic growth in the 90s, the deficit did disappear. But he had a lot of other reforms he talked about that people thought made sense because people thought 
our, our political establishment is broken and that needed to be reformed. And so Perot was the one who tossed out, I really popularized issues like term limits. Yeah. Yeah. And it was the and, and the Republicans saw that. And in 1994, if you go look at the contract with America that Newt Gingrich developed that led to so many Republican victories in the congressional races that year, it is very it, it's a laundry list of what things Perot had been advocating. Yeah, you know, term limits, balanced budget amendments, limitations on money and politics, all the things that Perot had talked about. So he profoundly impacted the Republican Party, and and had them a lot adopt a lot of this notion that Republicans are the reformers of a broken political system. And I think that's a very important legacy of his. The other legacy he left, I think, though, is also this notion that we need to go outside the political system to find our leaders. I point out that really for 150 years plus, Americans never thought that business tycoons would make good presidents. Nobody tried to draft Henry Ford or J.P. Morgan or, or John D. Rockefeller for president. Everyone sort of thought that that, that requires a different set of, of skills than running the country. Uh, but then beginning in the 80s, partly because of Reagan's sort of, uh, you know, the, the, the preeminence of the business community in the Reagan years, people started to say, you know, I really like that Lee Iacocca guy. If he can do that with Chrysler, what could he do with the United States? Mm-hmm. Iacocca demurred as Peter Ubroff, but Ross Perot, you know, he thought maybe he would make a pretty good president. <laughs> and, so, and so he ran. And I think a lot of people believe that – and it sort of sets this tone that's still out there that the system is so corrupt, we need somebody outside and somebody who's so wealthy – that they aren't beholden to anybody's interest. They aren't out there begging for money. They're independently wealthy, so they, they're, they're above politics. Yeah. And I think we've seen that now replicated many times. You saw it, I think, with uh, Bloomberg in New yeah. York City. You saw it with Schwarzenegger in California. Uh, you've seen it with a number of people who, who've run from the business world or from the celebrity entertainment world that people say, ah, you know, we, this, this is the person who's going to come in and rescue the system. And and I think without Ross Perot, we would still generally have sort of pretty conventional politics, which is you work your way up the ranks. Maybe some people skip their turn like Kennedy or Reagan, but you work your way up the ranks until you're nominated. And now there's always this constant look, Donald Trump last year and, and Herman Cain both. Where, where can we find somebody outside the system who can come in and we can trust? And I think that's an important legacy of Ross Perot, too. No, that's a, good, yeah. that's a very good point. I mean, maybe you wouldn't – you know, the, the, the modern Tea Party, the citizen le- legislator, you know, this is – you know, you, you don't need to work your way up through the Republican ranks. You can just be an insurgent and run. Um, and so Chapter 11 was sort of like, I guess, the latest losers. <laughs> Gore, Kerry, <Yeah>, McCain. <laughs> yeah, let's, let's talk about them. Yeah. Uh, what, 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 I highlight them, obviously, because I figured there's interest in the most recent election. Yeah, I highlight yeah. them because um, what do you do with the losers? I mean, that's always been an ongoing question yeah. for a while now. And in the old days, in the 19th, and that's also I talk about in a little bit in the book. I'd like to have talked about it more, but I a lot of reasons I didn't, but sure. sort of the evolution of how we feel about losers and losing generally in American society. We've now become hyper-competitive, where if, you, if, you're, if you're identified as a loser, we don't nothing to do with you. Uh, we want only successful people, uh, only winners is all we're looking for in America. Winning is the only thing. Uh, that wasn't always true. I think we were much more tolerant of losing in the 19th century, and so Henry Clay could lose, but still go yeah. back to Congress and play a very pivotal role. Stephen Douglas, Bryan, all these people were still widely admired characters even after they lost. Yeah. But then beginning with the age of television, and I guess it's because of the visual images are so powerful, hmm. once you became sort of identified as a loser and you had pictures that sort of proved it, <laughs> um, 
People yeah. just kind of disappeared, and they went quietly away. I mean, you know, McGovern's hung around in the Senate for a few years. Humphrey went back, but neither one were major players. They both yeah. complained. They weren't treated the same. They were treated as yesterday's news. Their influence was severely limited, and some people just completely just, you know, seemed to disappear. Mondale uh, kind of disappeared. Dole you know, resigned from the Senate before he, the election and yeah. occasionally pops up but didn't do much. So Dukakis went into oh. teaching. Yeah. And so what I credit Kerry Gore and McCain with is that they're trying to redefine the role of loser by sort of reestablishing this notion that they're still relevant, that they mm-hmm. had a large following. Gore, obviously, on climate change, uh, didn't come back into politics per se, but tried to find other ways to influence the world, the global debate on climate change, both uh, with his books, his yeah. movies, his TV channel. Uh, that Kerry had gone back to the Senate and didn't take sort of a junior position like Humphrey and, and McGovern had to, but became chair of Senate Foreign Relations, is yeah. now going to be probably the first. A losing candidate since Charles Evans Hughes to get a senior cabinet position in an administration. Yeah. He'll be Secretary of State. That hasn't happened since Hughes. I mean, Adley Stevenson got to be UN ambassador, but that's not a big post. Yeah. Um, and then McCain uh, has sort of almost tried to recapture what we used to be called the titular head, yeah. the role of the titular head of the party by being the main spokesperson uh, commenting on the, the winning administration. He's on the to- Sunday talk shows all the time yeah. criticizing the Obama administration, which was a role, again, ha- hadn't been performed since Adley Stevenson was kind of the official spokesperson for the Democrats yeah. for eight years. So, so all three men trying really hard. Uh, to to be relevant and to stay uh, vital and to use the capital they gained as presidential nominees to further the agendas they care about. And again, looking at the 2012 election, another sort of disappointment about Mitt Romney, uh, the first candidate in history that I can recall, certainly in modern times, who just didn't even give a post-election speech or press conference, has not written an op-ed column, hasn't injected himself into the debate at all, but is sort of falling more the mold, like I said, of a Dukakis or a Dole or a Mondale, which is, well, I guess I lost. I'll just go back and do something different. So uh, we'll see. We'll see how things play out over time. But uh, I'd like to think that the Gore, Kerry, and McCain model is going to continue, because I do think these losers... First of all, they're outstanding public servants, so they yeah. wouldn't have got a nomination. And then they must have learned so much in running a presidential campaign. It's a shame to lose that knowledge and not utilize it for the good of the country. No, I, I, I couldn't agree more. I, I, I particularly enjoyed you know, your, your point about that and sort of you know, thinking about uh, Gore. And, and you know, it, it's nice to see Kerry and McCain you know, to, to go back to the Senate and to kind of and, and not be like Humphrey. You know, I always felt so bad. You know, what was it? Humphrey took two years off, returned in 1970, and but it was never the same. Um, and, no. You know, and Kerry and McCain, uh, my impression is that, that they're they're valued by their Senate colleagues, still valued. Um, I mean, this is just and then you have an appendix where you talk about even, you know, <laughs> the folks you couldn't give shut up, yeah. <laughs> a full treatment. I mean, this is a really great book. I mean, this well, is really you. wonderful. I really enjoyed it. Can, can you tell us, or do you have something else that you're working on? That's a, our typical last question is that. I mean, not that you have to be, but what's well, next? Well, no, and in fact, it's interesting. I see your book is coming out this fall, and I was reading about the Vital Center just last night, as a matter of fact. Oh, really? I am doing. I'm doing a book comparing uh, the persons and presidencies of Ronald Reagan and John Kennedy. And I had sort of struck me one day that nobody had ever put these two together in a book and sort of compared them, even though they're contemporaries. They're only six years apart in age, and Reagan is actually older than Kennedy. 
but just how they are the defining icons of, of the president. See, Kennedy, the, the icon of the left, Reagan, the icon of the right. Uh, Gallup polls over the last 15 years have shown that Americans consistently rank Reagan and Kennedy as two of the three greatest presidents in history. Only, only Lincoln knocks one of those two off occasionally as the greatest president, which is an amazing thing when you think about it. Yeah. And so the book explores why, why have their legacies endured? Why are they still the gold standard for what we hope our presidents look like, what mm. they sound like, and frankly also what their policies we want. That was the, that was the revelation to me is their, their policies were actually far more similar than the probably partisans of each man want to acknowledge. <laughs> so, so maybe there is a vital center in American yeah. politics where left and right meet, and, and there are some parameters where Americans want our presidents to be, and maybe future presidential candidates ought to keep that in mind. You know, I did read this somewhere that um, – and I, I – that uh, it was Kennedy was the president that Reagan quoted most actually and um it, it's an interesting i mean reagan was such a you know a borrower of both kind of fdr and and kennedy it sounds like a really great book um well, look so. i look forward to it <laughs> we'll, and i look forward to reading yours i hope it comes out soon yeah in june um it, it, it will be out well scott ferris thank you very much for talking about uh your book almost president the men who lost the race but changed the nation this is put out by lions press um you know and it's a it's a it's a real page turner and not just a great read but um you know deeply informed so i i really appreciate it and i urge all the listeners to go out and get a copy Thank you, Jeff. I appreciate it. And my best to you and everybody again. Okay. Have a good day. Thank you, too. Well, I hope you enjoyed my interview with Scott Ferris. More importantly, I hope you were uh, motivated to go out and buy Almost President. Uh, read it. Tell your friends about it. Um, and then tune in next week for another interview with another author of another really interesting book about politics. Talk to you next week.